Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the LSE for this evening's event, which forms part of the LSE Festival Beverage 2.0, which is taking place from Monday the 19th to Saturday the 24th of February 2018. And it's part of a whole year of activities at LSE on rethinking the welfare state for the 21st century and for a global context. My name is Enkeleida Tahirai. I am visiting senior fellow at LSE European Institute at, at the LSE. I am delighted to welcome here our three speakers. Dr. Malcolm Torrey will briefly introduce the concept of citizen basic income first. Malcolm is a visiting senior fellow at the Department of Social Policy here at LSE and also director of the Citizen Basic Income Trust. The motion for this evening's debate will be, this house believes that if the beverage report were being written today, then it would have recommended a basic income. The motion will be proposed by Prof Professor Philippe Van Pare, who is Special Guest Professor at the University of Louvain and Leuven, and Robert Schumann Fellow at the University, European University Institute, and an Associate Member of the Nuffield College, Oxford. The motion will then be opposed by Professor John Kay, who has held chairs at the London Business School, the University of Oxford, the LSE, and is Fellow at St. John's College, Oxford. Then we will be hearing from you. This evening, we will use Poll Everywhere to take your questions and comments from the for the panel. You can submit a question at any time by going to pollev.com slash lscfestival. The link is not up on the screen yet, or it is up. It is up there on the screen. So you can enter your questions via, either via the Poll Everywhere app or by simply typing the address into a web page. You can also vote for the questions or comments that you want to ask us and that you would want the panel to talk about at the end. Please keep your questions and comments to a single short sentence. And if you see that your question has already been asked, then vote for that one. As we have a lot to get on this evening, we hope this will allow us to cover the questions and comments that most want to, the audience would most want to hear discussed and we'll put this up on the big screen at the end of the debate. After a brief, brief period during which some of your questions will be answered and your comments will be heard, Polly Toynbee, a columnist from The Guardian, will offer her reflections on the debate and on basic income. For those Twitter users in the audience, the hashtags for today's events is LSE Beverage and LSE Festival. I would ask you to please put your phones on silence so as to not disrupt the event. The event is being recorded and will hopefully be available as a podcast subject to no technical difficulties. The LSE Festival celebrates the 75th anniversary of the Beverage Report, which tackled the five giants of disease, ignorance, idleness, squalor, and want. But if Beverage had been, written, had been writing his report today, would, have, would he have written a basic income into it? Malcolm Torrey will now introduce a basic income, and we shall then debate that question. Basic income is an unconditional pay income paid to every individual. It is as simple as that. I could now sit down, but I have a few more, <laughs> but I have a few more words to say. A basic income has a number of different names. It's a citizen's income, a basic income, a citizen's basic income, a universal basic income. They all mean exactly the same they mean an unconditional income paid to every individual. The amount received would not depend on your income, it would not depend on your wealth, it would not depend on your household structure, it would not depend on your employment status, and it wouldn't depend on anything else. Every individual of the same age would receive exactly the same, the same amount every week or every month automatically. Older people might receive more than working age adults, younger adults less and less for children. So does adjusting the amount with someone's age compromise basic income's unconditionality? No, it doesn't. What's unique about basic income, what matters and what makes it work is that it can be turned on at your birth and turned off at your death and no active administration is required in between. Once the computer knows your date of birth, it never needs to ask about your age, 
It can seamlessly adjust the amount you're paid as your age changes. So everyone of the same age will receive exactly the same income unconditionally. Sometimes words are added to the definition, but they really aren't necessary. Basic income is unconditional, so within the jurisdiction in which it's paid, everybody gets it, so it is universal. There is no need to say that it is. Basic income is unconditional, which means that it would not fall if your other income rose, so it is non-withdrawable. There is no need to say that it is. It is universal and it is non-withdrawable, but all we need to say is this, every individual of the same age would receive exactly the same income unconditionally. If you've been at the morning and afternoon sessions of the Citizens Basic Income Day, which has run throughout today at the LSE, then you will have received an introductory booklet which will answer most of your questions that you might have about basic income. If you weren't at the morning or afternoon sessions, then please take a booklet from a table outside as you leave this evening. And now for the debate. Remember that you can submit your comments or questions for our panel or vote for those that you want to hear discussed at any time in this evening following the link up on the screen. Again, please keep your questions or comments to a single short sentence so that we can show them up on the screen at the end. Professor Philippe Vampari will now propose a motion. This House believes that if the beverage report were being written today, then it would have recommended a basic income. Philippe. Thank you very much, and I'll start with a quote. Uh, here it is. John, listen carefully. You may recognize the author. It's often tempting for scholars to believe that the best route to policy influence is to whisper in the minister's ear, but in reality, that whisper will be lost in the clamor of vested interest and day-to-day -day political pressures. It is in the broader climate of opinion that good ideas will tend over time to outlive the bad and rational argument to defeat the protestations of the self-interested. It is easy to forget that the principal route by which scholars exert influence is as it always has been through their students. Who is the author? <laughs> yes. Excellent. John Kay. Tax Policy, a survey, the Economic Journal, 1990. I love this quote. I love this <laughs> quote. And uh, especially when I think back, for example, the, at the first time I uh, talked to, I went to give a talk about basic income outside Belgium. It was in Berlin. And there were four people in the room, the two organizers, an old friend, and someone who was there by mistake. So, <laughs> I sometimes have the feeling that it's not only through the students, but at my age, through the students of our students, that we can exert some influence. So what I'm going to do today is to, that's my task, my job, uh, is to try to uh, defend one of those ideas that I believe will outlive the good ideas that, that will outlive the bad. Now, I have to do that in a format which, uh, frankly, I'm not very keen on, and also in answer to a question uh, which I could not possibly answer. The format, well, I don't think it's our job as academics, as scholars, to try to mimic politicians in Oxford Union-style debates. It is our job to provide you with food for thought, often on issues it took us, some, it took us quite long to understand, so that you can then make, your up, make up your own minds, not within seconds or within an hour, but over uh, days and months and, and years, thinking by yourselves, discussing it with your friends, and above all, listening carefully to objections to the position which you are inclined to take. This is the spirit in which I'm going to speak, and I'm sure, I'm sure John will too. However, we are asked to do this in answer to a question which I think neither of us is qualified to answer. The question is, uh, 
I restated if the beverage report were written today, would it have recommended a basic income? This is a question for historians or for political analysts. It's a question on which I have no competence whatever. There is a, a, there is a similarly sounding but fundamentally distinct questions on which I might have an opinion, but which I think I would be badly, uh, not be well advised uh, to give you my answer. And that question is, uh, if the beverage report were written today, should it, be re uh, should it recommend a basic income? Well, I think there are enough people in this country who have recently expressed the view that they no longer wanted to get any instruction from Brussels. So, <laughs> so I don't think they are prepared to put up with advice, however gently provided from a guy like me, born and living in Brussels. So allow me to propose the following less parochial way of phrasing the question. The beverage report, as, was, uh, as we were just reminded, aimed to address five giant evils. Want, disease, ignorance, squalor, and idleness. Here is then the question I'm going to address. Should an attempt to uh, tackle these five giant evils in today's developed countries, so-called developed countries, uh, so in the 21st century, should any such attempt include a basic income? And my answer to that question is yes. It is yes, not because a basic income, however high, could solve in one swoop all these five problems, but because I believe it is relevant unequally but significantly for each of these five giant evils. For three of them, I shall just ask a question to get you thinking about the possible connection. For the other two, I shall be a bit more explicit. Squalor. Of course, we need a housing policy. But in a century in which part of the housing scarcity is generated by the expansion, in some countries like mine, the fast expansion of single adult households, would it not make sense if a strictly individual unconditional benefit took the place of at least some benefits that are scrapped or significantly reduced if people decide to live together. Two, disease. Of course we need a healthcare policy, but in a century in which sickness, the inability to work, takes increasingly a mental rather than a physical form, burnout, burnout, depression, we heard David Graeber earlier, would it not make sense if an unconditional flaw uh, made it easier for people to slow down or to have a break? or to go to a job, to go for a job more meaningful to them when they feel close to the limit of what they can bear. Three, ignorance. Of course we need an educational policy, but in a century in which what is more badly needed than ever is all forms of learning, education, training throughout life, in a century also in which what is more lacking than ever is parental attention at the time at the time the kids, the, ch the children need it, would it not make sense to introduce an unconditional flaw which will make it easier to move back and forth throughout life between employment, education, and voluntary activities, not only, but especially within the family. Then for want, could, would, should the basic income get rid of income poverty? For some people, the answer is simple, indeed too simple. Just pick any definition of poverty, for example, 50% of equivalized median income, the uh, EU definition, and then introduce a basic income at the poverty threshold, even for a single adult. The result, it is said, is that no one will be poor, unless as a result of this measure, the median income for everyone, the, the median income in society increases. This is, of course, too simple because it ignores a sensible challenge that comes in various formulations. <coughs> for example, some people will say, as an objection, 
And there have been various uh, reports based on uh, simulations recently uh, leading to this sort of conclusion. Any affordable basic income would increase, basic, uh, would increase poverty rather than decrease it, let alone abolish it. Or there is a stark choice between a basic income that is unacceptably low and one that is unsustainably high. Or again, perhaps the best formulation of the difficulty, the form of a trilemma, either you increase, if you introduce a basic income, either you will increase poverty rather than reduce it, or it will require an unsustainable level of taxation, or you will have to retain the existing complexity. What's my answer to that challenge? Well, there are many things I should say, but within short time, I'll just say two. First element of the answer is well formulated, for example, in Tony Atkinson's uh, last book uh, on uh, inequality, which is that we must see that there are three forms of social protection or social security or economic security. One, social assistance born in Flanders at the beginning of the 16th century. Two, social insurance concocted by Condorcet at the end of the 18th century and uh, implemented from the end of 19th century by Bismarck. And then three, social dividends, uh, which exists in an age-restricted fashion in the form of universal child benefits and a universal basic uh, pension. Well, Atkinson says, just as social uh, insurance has not replaced entirely social assistance, but reduced its role and enabled it to work better, similarly, a social dividend, a basic income, will not replace entire, entirely social assistance and social insurance, but will enable them to work better. A basic income is not, will not uh, be a tabula rasa where you eliminate all the rest, but will consist in fitting an unconditional flow under the whole distribution of income, including some benefits that will remain subjected to some conditions. And the second part of uh, the answer is, um, uh, must consist in answering the more specific question, if you introduce a modest basic income, insufficient to lift a person living on her own, certainly in urban, in urban context, uh, out of poverty, does it do anything, such a low basic income, does it do anything to poverty if it's not above the poverty threshold? And the answer must be three times yes. Yes, first, because of the rate of take-up, a point which uh, Tony Atkinson has repeatedly uh, rehearsed, that what looks like better for the poor on paper, because you target to the poor, will turn out to be worse because of all the difficulties in the rate of take-up due to in lack of information or stigmatization. Two, there is the poverty trap aspect, which is, of course, not abolished for all if you keep some top-ups that remain conditional, but it will be uh, abolished for some and it will be reduced for everyone. And three, there is also a dimension to which people were less sensitive in beverage spirit, which is the intra-household poverty. Um, however you fund it, uh, whether high or low, a basic income will always increase the income and the bargaining power of the poor members of each household, and that is, of course, mostly women. Finally then, fifth, uh, a giant evil, idleness. Idleness. That, you may think, that's going to be tricky for basic income, for an unconditional basic income. Well, here again, I won't give my full answer to the question, but let me just give first two quotes, which are only part of the answer. Bertrand Russell, um, the idea that the poor should have leisure has always been shocking to the rich. <laughs> and John Kenneth Galbraith, just at the, at the time he gave this famous lecture here at the LSE, towards the end of his life, said, leisure is very good for the rich, quite good for Harvard professors, or indeed Louvain professors, or Oxford professors, and very bad for the poor. The wealthier you are, the more you are thought to be entitled to leisure. For anyone on welfare, leisure is a bad thing. But this is not the whole of the answer and not, uh, in my view, the core of the answer. When recently, so there was a, 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 the, the Italian edition of our book, a Harvard University book on basic income, 
uh, was published and I was interviewed by Il Manifesto, an Italian daily. And the first question was uh, as follows. Uh, it said, um, I have three more minutes, yes, for the fifth uh, giant uh, evil. Um, uh, so uh, the first question was, uh, the former Minister of Labour, uh, Elsa Fornero, said, if you introduce a basic income in Italy, people will spend that time uh, sunbathing and eating pasta. So uh, I thought that's a very good question for me because I happen to know Elsa Fornero. So, uh, uh, I gave three answers. I said, one, um, if Elsa Fornero were given a uh, basic income of 500 euros, would she stop working? Of course not, because uh, she wants a higher standard of living. If Elsa Fornero were given a basic income of 5,000 euros, would she stop working? Of course not, because she has a meaningful job and uh, she'll keep doing it with the same enthusiasm and commitment as she does it now. But what about a cleaner? What about a cleaner? Given 500 euros per month, she may say, well, I'll go home, I'll work part-time, and I'll go home at four every, uh, every day in order to pick up my kids from school instead of leaving them the, the very last to be picked up in the evening. Okay, she may well do that or go to evening class, something like that. And that may mean that Elsa Fornero, the likes of Elsa Fornero, if that's generalized, uh, will have to pay a bit more in order to have cleaners of the same quality and the same quantity, or they may have to do a bit more of the toilet cleaning themselves in their house and a number of things like that. <coughs> and so that's really the issue of idleness. If you give, um, if you give a basic income, well, a number of people who have a, a job that is not that fantastic and not very well paid, get a higher bargaining power. As a result of that, yes, they may become more idle. That is idle defined as not doing paid work at a particular time. But there are lots of other things they could do instead and they will do instead. And this is the typical case. So uh, the answer, what is really fundamental in, in, in the answer is this, that you must not think of Malibu service and all the rest in, uh, when you think about the impact of basic income, it will be something like a redistribution of leisure, a redistribution of idleness, for idleness in this sense, for the sake of greater justice. So uh, basic income must, and that's a further part on, on this evil, basic income will not be, must not be seen as a substitute to the right to work because it enables some people who work too much to work less. And because, due to the fact that it's a flaw that can be combined with income from other sources, it reduces or, or uh, in some cases abolishes this poverty trap, it will mean that some of the people unable to work will have access to work. So it's more like an instrument that will increase the, improve the right to work in the sense of the real possibility of access uh, to work. So let me, given that my time is up and I have an hopefully an opportunity to come back in discussion, to finish with this. Yes, basic income uh, is a good idea that will uh, outlive some of the bad, but please keep paying the greatest attention to the objections that are made to it. Not just under basic income, people shouldn't be just a little sect, a little clique of people who just congratulate each other on all the marvelous things that basic income is supposed to do. There are many problems which basic income will not solve, and it's very important to keep listening to people who have objections against it, as no doubt we are going to do now. Thank you. Thank you, Felipe. Professor John Kay will now oppose the motion. I can understand why Philippe started by telling us he wasn't actually going to defend the motion which was before us tonight. Because I think if we ask the question, if the beverage report were being written today, would it recommend uh, a basic income? We can answer it by saying we can be sure that if Sir William Beveridge were writing it, it would not recommend a basic income. If we have any doubts about that, we should simply look at some of the things that Sir William said. Um, 
The objection springs not so much from a desire to get everything for nothing as from resentment at a provision which appears to penalise what people have come to regard as the duty and pleasure of thrift, of putting pennies away for a rainy day. Management of one's income is an essential element of a citizen's freedom. Payment, and listen to this carefully, payment of a substantial part of the cost of benefit as a contribution, irrespective of the means of the contribution, is the firm basis of a claim to benefit irrespective of means. That is the philosophy that underpins the Beveridge Report. It was absolutely clear. It was that there was a link between contributions and benefits. It was not an actuarial link in the sense that what people put in or what people took out was not a formulaic proportion of what they took in. But it was, as it were, a form of social solidarity in which everyone contributed when they were able and everyone benefited when they took not. And that was the fundamental philosophy of the Beveridge Report. It's worth noting, as Philippe acknowledged, that poverty and idleness were not the same uh, issues as far as Beveridge was concerned. Idleness, the problem of idleness was not simply that it caused poverty. Idleness was an evil in its own right in Beveridge's view. But let me give um, Philippe his different motion in order to give him the best chance of winning this debate because I think you will conclude at the end that I am going to win it anyway. <laughs> Uh, I enjoyed very much the quote with which Philippe began, a quote of how one exerts influence, and I remain as convinced of that quote today as I did when I wrote it now 27 years ago. I can illustrate the force of it, perhaps, by going further back into my own personal history. Because I was introduced to this debate way back in the 1970s, when I sat at the feet of two great economists, both closely associated with this institution, James Mead on the one hand and Tony Atkinson on the other. And I found myself as a, a young researcher uh, forced to mediate between these two people. Because I was and am fundamentally a numbers person. I'm much more at home with the kind of stuff you can see on that board over there than with the kind of broad philosophical argument that Philippe has presented to us today. But James Mead was, throughout his life, an enthusiast for the idea of a social dividend. And at that time in the 1970s, Mead was arguing for a social dividend, while Tony Atkinson was arguing for what he called a back-to-beverage approach. Now, what Tony meant when he talked about back-to-beverage was returning to the beverage principle in which benefits, welfare payments were made to people essentially on the basis of contingency. That it was, it was when you were unemployed, it was when you were sick, it was when you were disabled, it was when you were old that benefits were paid to you. And the philosophy of the beverage report, the philosophy which Tony then embraced, was the philosophy that if you provided these benefits at an adequate level, there would only be a very limited need for a residual scheme to deal with poverty. That was the back-to-beverage approach. The Mead's social dividend approach was, broadly speaking, what Philippe described. He wanted to pay everyone a basic, an unconditional basic income. Now, my job was to do the numbers for these two kind of schemes. And what became quickly evident to me was that neither of these schemes in unmodified form were actually feasible. In order to devise a scheme which actually achieves the objectives of getting money to people who need it, but doing it at an aggregate cost that is actually manageable, you need to devise a welfare system that makes use of both contingent information, employment status, age, sickness, state of health, and so on, and income-related benefits. 
And if you don't do that, the numbers simply do not add up. And I persuaded James Mead then, which is why the Mead report, which he produced in the 1970s, did not recommend a social dividend. It rather, it, uh, rather pussyfoots around social dividend. It talks about what a good idea it would be if only were, if it were implementable, and in the end comes up with recommending a modified version of Tony's back-to-beverage scheme. That was right then, and it is right now. And if you doubt that, let me take you very briefly through the critical numbers. In the UK at the moment, the minimum wage is um, 7.50 an hour to rise in April to £7.83 an hour. That works out uh, at an income for someone working full-time of between 260 and 280 pounds a year. That compares with median earnings in the United Kingdom. That is the earnings that are the divide between the richer half and the poorer half in terms of the earnings distribution. Median earnings are about 550 pounds a week. And that number is rather similar to what is the average GDP per head in the United Kingdom. Hold these key figures in your mind for the moment. The average and the median are 550 pounds a week. The minimum, which is um, uh, 280 pounds a week, about half that level. The discussion of basic income polarizes really around two levels of basic income. One is the level of basic income which is affordable in terms of current welfare payments, the kind of thing which could be implemented on a revenue-neutral basis. And that works out at about £70 per week. The other possible level of basic income in, is one which corresponds, roughly speaking, uh, to the level at which benefit is currently paid to people who have no other source of income. We have a pension in the United Kingdom which is now at a rate of just under £160 a week. If you receive the principal disability benefit in full, the personal independence payment which is now introduced, it is about £140 a week. It is, in fact, roughly equal to the 25% of income per head, of average income per head, which is one of the measures of basic income, indeed the fundamental basic level of basic income that Philippe uses, produces in his book. But the revenue neutral level of basic income is half of that. And you can do the sum, I think, that is now implied very easily. Because if you were to pay 25% of uh, national income per head in basic income, that is going to cost you 25% of national income. And if you add to that the figure between 20 and 25% of uh, national income, which goes on health, on education, on policing and defense and so on, the other things that the government spends money on, you get an overall average tax rate, which is between 45 and 50%. And that compares with a current level in the UK of an average overall tax rate of 33%, which is marginally below the average for the OECD de developed countries, which is 34%. You're talking about raising taxes, all taxes overall, by about half from their current level in order to fund a level of basic income that would be a serious alternative, would even come close to being a serious alternative to income from employment for any large numbers of people. If you do the sum today, you come up with the same conclusion I reached in the 1970s, that the numbers of this scheme simply do not add up. Either the level of basic income is too low to meet its objectives, or if it's high enough to meet its objectives, it becomes unaffordable. And at that point, I might sit down. <laughs> because in a real sense, I don't think there is much more to be said. But let me 
take three points which are made in response and deal with them. The first is, of course we can't do it properly straight away, but we could phase it in. That's curiously what Beveridge said in his report way back in 1942. He realized that his scheme in unmodified form was unaffordable and we ought to phase it in. Of course that turns out not to work as it just didn't work for the beverage scheme. And the reason it doesn't work is that your target of level of benefits rises as incomes rise. So you're always dealing with the same relativities which is why the sum I was doing this evening is essentially the same sum I was doing in the 1970s. This kind of phasing in would work if what we were trying to do was achieve an absolute level of, of support, but inevitably we're trying to achieve a relative uh, level of support. The second objection which is raised is we have no choice but to do this because automation is going to take all our jobs. Robots and artificial intelligence are going to put everyone out of work except a few clever people in Silicon Valley who are inventing them, which is why these clever people in Silicon Valley are today part of a lobby for this kind of basic income proposal. Well, this is an argument that has a long history. If you go to Manchester Town Hall, you will discover a mural of my namesake, John Kay, and John Kay is flee fleeing the rioters who are chasing him in protest against his invention of the flying shuttle. They believe they will be put out of work by his machine. And uh, 50 years later, Lord Byron made his inaugural speech in the House of Lords in defense of the Luddites. The, the machines were of considerable advantage to the proprietors of the improved frames inasmuch as they superseded the necessity of employing a number of workmen who were left in consequence to starve. One man performed the work of many and the superfluous laborers were thrown out of, or out of employment. These claims have been made about every set of technological innovations for the last 250 years. That doesn't, of course, necessarily mean they're wrong today, but I suggest we need to wait for some evidence before we actually conclude that they are wrong. And let me raise, let me also ask you to note that today unemployment in Britain and the United States are at the lowest levels they have been at for 50 years. If we're on the verge of uh, extreme unemployment generated by automation. There is no sign of it today. The third argument which will be raised is we don't have to worry about the cost of these schemes because we will pay for them from the fruit of the magic money tree. There are always versions of the magic money tree to be found. The ones that are most popular today are getting rid of multinational tax avoidance, and helicopter money of various kinds. There used to be, in a more right-wing age, uh, eliminating waste or having latter, or from the latter curve. We don't have to worry about deficits, it's said. Well, I want to give you a proverb, which is, don't eat the fruit of the magic money tree until it actually ripens. And I'd also say, take your sandwiches with you while you're waiting for it to ripen and perhaps take your gun with you, because if it does ripen, there'll be a lot of people clamoring from it. Beveridge would not have recommended a, a basic income. Beveridge said, in, in the course of his report, the government should not feel that by paying doles, it can avoid the major responsibility of seeing that unemployment and disease are reduced to the minimum. The place for direct expenditure and organization by the state is in maintaining employment of the labor and other productive resources of the country and in preventing and combating disease, not in patching an incomplete system of insurance. I think Beveridge was right to say that then and I think he would be right to repeat it today.
I ask you to oppose this motion. Thank you, John. We are now going to address some of the questions and comments that have come from the audience. If you haven't done so, please do submit your questions now. Or if you see your question has been already submitted, vote for it. So we, while we wait to see the questions on the screen. Right. So I'm going to read the questions and they are put in order of the voting. Um, how many people have voted for each question? The first question is, how does one justify paying the same basic income to the very rich? Surely it's a waste of tax revenue. Would Philippe or John like to the first question? answer? Yes, we're taking the questions as they come. Well, simple answer, the rich will pay for their own basic income and the basic income of many other people at the same time. So the, um, but that relates to the important point that was made uh, earlier by one of the Indian uh, contributors. That, that is, you, you can only have a, a basic income, really universal, if you, your fiscal system is sufficiently strong to claw back uh, the money that is given to the rich. Obviously, there are lots of, uh, it's much simpler, including especially in uh, an economy with a, in a country with a large informal economy to give a universal basic income rather than to, to have a, a means test that's properly controlled. But that's only <coughs> fair if you can claw it back. And of course, the rich in countries with a developed fiscal uh, system will have to pay for their own basic income, whether it's through consumption tax, an, an income tax, uh, VAT, whatever. That's an easy question. I'm sure there are more difficult ones. <laughs> I'm not sure it's such an easy question. I think we need to ask the question, relative to the status quo, who would benefit from a basic income? And the answer is people who have uh, currently, who are not currently in employment and who are not entitled to state benefits. Now, think for a moment and ask yourself, who are such people? They fall, I think, into three categories. The first are people who have, um, are not in employment and whose partners are sufficiently rich that they do not need to seek employment. For shorthand, I call them ladies who lunch. <laughs> the second group of people are students. Uh, one thing that surprises me in all this discussion is that it absolutely relates to the problem of student finance. And I'm surprised that in discussions of basic income, so little is said about the issue of students. Because there are more than two million people in this country in higher education. Are we to pay them basic income? Is this in substitute for the existing maintenance loan system? What are we going to do about fees? Or are we going to wait for the magic money tree to solve that problem as well? And the third group of people who are not in employment and are not in receipt of benefits are people who are unemployed and not, in, uh, and not entitled to benefits because they're not available for work or not seeking work. And they're not sick, they're not disabled, they're not retired. Uh, for shorthand, I'll call them bums. They're people who would prefer to stay at home vid playing video games or going to the gym. Or some of them, no doubt, will compose great symphonies and some of them great works of art. But I suspect this will not be very many of them. John, um, Do I really want to spend money on these categories of people? John, aren't we there degenerating into mimicking politicians' debates? Aren't you forgetting a very important category of people, which were also omitted in your very optimistic figures about uh, the rate of unemployment in the US and in Europe? They are uh, Elsa Forneros cleaners and the like. There are people in employment. There are people with low wages, with jobs that are not very attractive. So the people who will gain are not most, most of the people who will gain are not the three categories you mentioned. There are people who are in precarious jobs, which uh, they would like to, to reduce, that they would like to switch to jobs that are more meaningful, 
that will be the main category of gainers. And of course, that will, uh, you, you need to, to make sure that the whole thing is sustainable. But it's really a caricature to just say that the beneficiaries will be the three categories you mentioned. And especially in the United Kingdom, I just read also precisely on the five evils, uh, uh, an excellent article in The Guardian that indicated how much worse the five evils had become recently, especially among people who are on low earnings. Sorry. We've got 11 votes on the question, if not basic income, then what is your solution to the massive inequality we see? That's a question for you, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, let, first of all, before we talk about... I, I'm no problem on this because I am, as I said, a numbers guy. Before we talk about massive inequality increase, we have to know rather more precisely what we're talking about. If I'm talking about Britain, and it's probably easiest to talk about Britain, we've had quite significant reductions in certain kinds of inequality in the last two decades. In particular, we have more or less eliminated uh, pensioner poverty, and we have significantly reduced poverty among working families with children, the people whom Philippe was talking about a moment ago. The inequality increase we observe is an inequality increase which is uh, at the very top end of the income distribution. That is, if I take out the top 1% or the top 5%, I would actually in Britain see a, a reduction in inequality. But there is, depending on how one measures it, uh, an inequality increase that arises from a very large share increase in the share of income going to the people at the very top of the income distribution. That is due to what has happened in the financial sector and it is due to what has happened to executive remuneration at the very top of the, the wage scale. If I was dealing with inequality in Britain, what I would do would be implement policies to tackle these, tackle, implement policies to reform the financial sector. You will have the opportunity to by my book after this, which will explain how we should do that. Uh, and I would also want to uh, do a variety of things about excessive remuneration in the corporate sector. I also have a report which was written for the government a few years ago, which makes some proposals in relation to that. So I'm absolutely up for the challenge of dealing with in increased inequality in the UK. But I think we need to be careful and meticulous about our analysis in deciding what the policies which we need are. We have 12 voters on the second question, but it seems to have run out of space and we don't get the same sentence. So most discussions around UBI discuss the creation and use of a citizen wealth fund, given that the UK is currently lacking one and that we already run a substantial something. Um, shall we Deficit, I Deficit. <laughs> um, Shall we move to the next question? Do you want me when? to read out the rest of it from here? Okay. okay so, uh, most discussions around UBI discuss the creation and use of the Citizens' Wealth Fund, given that the UK is currently lacking one, and already run a substantial budget deficit, could the use of one be justified? Yeah. Well, yeah. the, uh, John referred to... Uh, discussions between uh, Atkinson and Mead. And you may remember a uh, uh, discussion, I think there was some sort of homage to Mead, and Atkinson uh, discussed then uh, Mead's particular proposal for a social dividend. And one, of, one aspect of what Mead called uh, agathotopia was uh, uh, to build up gradually a sort of uh, citizen's uh, uh, sovereign fund, and then to start funding gradually the basic income not uh, through taxation, but through the yield of uh, this fund. And then Tony Atkinson's objection to that scheme was that there would be some sort of intergenerational unfairness because you would tax more or give less benefits uh, of various sorts of public service to, to the present generation in order to build up that fund for the benefit of later generations. And that seemed to him, and I must say also to me, a decisive uh, objection to that argument. So I personally 
think that uh, uh, in countries like Britain or indeed like uh, other European countries, uh, the funding of basic income through the interest or part of the interest on a sovereign fund is really not on the agenda. We'll have to uh, fund it, not uh, through money creation, but uh, uh, nor through a sovereign fund, nor through uh, the, uh, <coughs> the exploitation of our natural resources, but through some form of taxation. And perhaps that's a good point to mention something that was important also in your defense of the philosophy be beyond beverage. And uh, the idea of a social dividend, uh, you may say the social dividend is something so um, uh, hostile, so, uh, uh, so uh, contradictory with the very idea of reciprocity and of contribution, which is a very important element in the whole discussion. But what is crucial about uh, the justification, the most fundamental justification of a basic income, is that what is being done there is not a redistribution of part of the fruit of the work of today's workers, or indeed of uh, the imagination of today's uh, innovators or entrepreneurs, but it is a fair sharing of this enormous rent that is incorporated in all our incomes. So John's income, my income, it mostly consists of a gift that is due to capital accumulation and to technical innovation in the past. And what the basic income does is redistribute in a fair way among all and not in proportion to the skills people have, the, the, the lucrative skills people have or the bargaining power in the labor market, but to distribute more fairly a part of this gift which we've received from the past. And that is why the, the philosophy behind the third type of social protection is fundamentally different. It's not charity to the poor, like social assistance. It's not solidarity among the workers in order to cover themselves in some contingencies, as you rightly call them. But it is a fair sharing of this rent. And it's only when this click happens that people start seeing it in a different way. If you're Norway or Alaska, and you're lucky enough to discover the magic money tree, as they have, then you can have a citizen's income of some kind funded from the magic money tree, as these countries do. If you're um, uh, most countries of the world, sadly, you don't have the, uh, that opportunity. And I'm afraid Britain and Belgium are in the position of not having that opportunity. I'm afraid we have to stop the questions here, and we're now go going to ask the audience to vote the motion that has, de has been debated today, this evening. Those of you who are already on the poll everywhere page will see that the question has now changed to the one that has been also, should be up on the big screen every minute now. <coughs> so if the beverage reports were being written today, then it would have recommended a basic income. The reason for this motion this evening is because the whole of the LSE Festival is a celebration of the 75th anniversary of Beverage Report. A question, however, at least as interesting would have been this House believes that the basic income is both desirable and feasible. You might wish to discuss that question among yourselves. So while you vote for the motions, agree or disagree, please take your votes now. And we will show the results up on the screen. If you cannot vote, if you do not have a phone, please ask a neighbor to vote for you. <laughs> 58% agree that if the beverage report were being written today, then you would have recommended a basic income. And 42% disagree. They're still voting? Okay, so we see the results are open up on the screen now. We've got 58% of you think that if the beverage report were being written today, then you would have recommended a basic income, while 42% of you disagree. Now, I would like to ask Polly Toynbee to offer her reflections on the debate on the basic income and on the results of this poll, this po <laughs> <is> possible. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, it's been a terrific day today. I've been here all day listening to uh, people from all over the world talking about different pilot schemes, different ways of thinking about it from very different economies and very different cultures in such a way that, it, you know, if you're hearing about it from uh, India or from African countries, it sounds very different to the way we might think about it here. Um, 
In some ways, some of the discussions have been utopian, uh, about great hopes and aspirations, some dystopian, about fear of what the future might be in terms of joblessness and the problems that a basic income might solve. Um, I think it's been interesting that we've had supporters from the right and the left, and I think on the whole this is something that tends to be supported by the left, and um, I suspect that most, most of the people here who are supporting it are from the left, but it was interesting that we had somebody from the Adam Smith Institute as well, who also believe in flat taxes, and that rather goes with the idea of a basic income. It was someone who also believed that uh, taxes should be raised by VAT and sales tax and not by income taxes. I think it's a warning to the left in a way that Silicon Valley has become so enamored of this, that Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerman, <coughs> as, as John Kay mentioned, are very excited by that, this idea as if it somehow gets them off the hook so that if their future of AI and robots really does cause immense social distress and disruption, well, the state can pick, pick up the bill and uh, deal with those problems, even though they, of course, go to great lengths not to pay any tax in order for the state to be able to step in uh, to solve any harm that they may cause. I think there is, in lots of places, lots of... Uh, amongst many people, you can hear a kind of growing enthusiasm for the ideas behind basic income. It's sparked a kind of light in people's eyes. Um, after all, it did begin with Thomas Paine, and now it goes right through to Barack Obama uh, talking about the possibilities of it and thinking about it, and certainly people within the Labour Party saying maybe it's something that should be considered. John McDonald has said that. Um, it has very obvious great advantages. Freedom from our monstrous benefit system, which is cruel, uh, its sanctions are appalling, its means testing is savage. Uh, I think anybody who's seen the Ken Loach movie uh, will know exactly how brutal it could be. Um, I think that uh, it could possibly alleviate poverty. Uh, it certainly would do something to redistribute wealth. Uh, it takes away stigma, it adds dignity. Uh, it adds a spirit of mutualism that is uplifting in, in many ways. Is a, behind it is a philosophy of generosity and of sharing of, of wealth. Um, I think what, one of the interesting things is that uh, some of those who are not so much in favor or rather like John Kay simply think the sums don't add up Bath University was amongst them talking uh, today. They'd done sums that come out rather differently to Malcolm Tories. Uh, but they did say that they thought it might be a very interesting idea f just for the young, opposite to what John says. John was worried that it would be particularly bad for the young. They thought quite the opposite, that it would deal with maintenance problem. And as long as people were in education of some form or another, or apprenticeships, that actually um, a, a basic income for the young would be, uh, solve a great many problems about paying for people to subsist uh, in education and in encouraging it. So um, that might be, seem to me, a place where you'd begin. So, well, let's try it. Let's try it there and, and look at its effects. Um, after all, the problems we face at the moment are very serious. Stagnant wages, uh, I know John has said inequality is not rising, but it hasn't come down much since it shot up in the 1980s and has pretty much stayed there ever since. Um, the millennial generation feels as if it's going to be worse off than their parents, which is a shocking state of affairs. Jobs feel worse for a lot of people who felt they or their parents had better jobs and they fetched up as security guards in the gig economy and jobs with very few prospects. Um, benefits pay pretty miserably, as we saw from John's figures, well below the poverty line. The vast accretions of wealth that is largely untaxed in this country, uh, hugely greater inequality in wealth than in income, because income does get somewhat redistributed. Uh, the near decade we've had of austerity and the harshness it's brought and the uh, enormous damage that it's doing to our public services, all of these things um, 
give a, a, a sense of alarm about where we are and where we're headed. Certainly there's a lot of apocalyptic talk about what job losses in the future might be, and they wouldn't just be for lorry drivers and taxi drivers, but for accountants and all sorts of people uh, much further up the middle, uh, the middle of the scale who might find that AI does them out of work. Uh, and so the idea of spreading the pain and the rewards has a great attraction, if you don't look too hard at the actual numbers. Um, I think that... You know, you look at social mobility having come to a halt, for instance. The fact that the entire, not particularly left-wing, social mobility commission resigned the other day because we have a government that talks endlessly about opportunity for all and social mobility and has done nothing whatever about it and pays no attention to their reports. The whole lot of them walked out. So you can see again why basic income seems to touch on a lot of these things. But I do think there are very practical problems that many have risen, not just the, John put it very succinctly, the OECD, others, uh, the Bath University figures. Um, David Piesho from the LSE has produced uh, some pretty damning figures on how difficult it would be. And the problem being not only that you don't lift the poor out of poverty, but that you might very well end up uh, cutting off some of the benefits they actually get at the moment. Uh, Beveridge himself never managed to produce a perfect benefit system. There isn't one. It's, it, you know, it, it's, it's a magic bullet that doesn't exist. There are always awkward corners. Housing benefit particularly, which Beveridge never managed to fit into his system of things. Um, I think that the big question, though, is if you really could raise that amount more money, income tax, to pay for... Uh, uh, a basic income, is this where you would start to spend your money? If you were the chancellor and you, took, you brought in that extra income, how would you look at the society we're living in now and how would you decide to spend it? And where in your list of priorities would a basic income come? Or would you really say, I want to target much more on the people with least or on those public services that are growing so threadbare? The real problem, it seems to me, is not a technical system of how you deliver benefits or a basic income. The real problem is politics. It's all of us. It would be a huge task uh, in public persuasion to persuade people to adopt a system like this. I'm afraid the UK is in a very mean uh, state of mind at the moment. Just look at the governments that we elect time after time. <laughs> the Daily Mail sells very well. Nobody force people, forces people to buy it. Um, and I think all parties are very afraid of attitudes towards benefits and a, and a general lack of generosity amongst a large section of the public. I mean, Labour, after all, chose to spend far more on giving free uh, university fees than it did on restoring the benefits that have been pretty savagely cut in their recent manifesto. I mean, you look at someone like Nick Bowles, uh, a Tory moderniser who's trying to kind of uh, take away their nasty party image. He's absolutely savage about uh, basic income and its moral hazard and it wouldn't be fair and people would feel it wasn't fair, even though even those who were receiving it might feel it wasn't fair. I think it's a, a very uphill task, a very hard sell, and I'm pretty sure that Beveridge would not have liked the something for nothing feeling uh, that would be engendered by it. So there are two sets of emotions here. There are wonderful, uplifting, generous emotions that it instills and that I love about basic income. On the other side, there's the knowledge of that underlying uh, you know, anti-welfare attitude that has taken hold in this, in this country and is pretty mean-spirited, uh, suspicious, controlling of the poor, uh, all of those things that uh, Philippe said, uh, absolutely, you know, what Bertrand Russell said, well, you know, it is what people feel in some way, that the poor are not entitled, or anybody who's getting any kind of benefit is not entitled. Um, but, of course, if the dystopians are right, and we really are in for a savage bout of unemployment, and uh, jobs really are on the way out, then that's the point at which I think attitudes might change and basic income might become the only possible answer to uh, a, you know, a, a truly
dreadful uh, state of affairs. I think that um, basic income sounds a bit like a, a technical solution to what is really a political problem. It's how people feel that matters most and what we need most to change. And, what, and I'm not sure that this is the best uh, instrument. I mean, you look at the task ahead, people regard tax as a burden. It's always, even the Labour Party has always talked about tax as a burden, very tax-phobic country. I think you start by persuading people in a slightly different way. You say, you know, Mrs. Thatcher always used to say, you will spend the pound in your pocket much better than the state ever will. And I think a lot of us here would say that's entirely the wrong way around. Think of the things we buy together collectively. Think of the things we're proudest of. Health, education, <coughs> public spaces, our safety and security, beautiful parks, beautiful buildings, art, sports. All of the things that made us proudest of our country, if you want to talk about patriotism, all of the things that make us feel best are actually the things we purchase together through our tax pound. They are not the things we buy in shops. And I think you start by persuading people of that. And then further down the line is, and part of that is sharing amongst us as well. It is making sure that nobody's left behind, that everybody can participate, that we all have uh, a, a fairer share of things but that's one step further down the line, I think. It's, a, it's very hard in this country trying to persuade people that tax is good and they get good value for their money. But I do think it's a winnable case. And I think as you know, the dysfunctions of societies become more obvious to everybody, you know, whether it's just people sleeping out in the street in freezing cold weather, we get closer and closer towards uh, a time when you know, the pendulum does swing. <coughs> People get too mean and, and they get more generous uh, and they elect a different government. Uh, but I do think this debate is really important. I think it opens windows, opens minds, makes people think. So I hugely welcome it. And I always live in hope and travel in hope because there is no other way to be, even though part of me is rather with Brecht, who said uh, <coughs> we should elect a new people. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>